make sure that each person has their own area of expertise and that they shine in that area and they don't have to compete with their colleagues for sunshine, right? Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Gina and we're well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Well, thank you for inviting me. You are the managing partner at Emerald Technology Ventures, a globally recognized investment and venture capital firm. And before we're going to talk about your investments and the journey that basically brought you there, I want to learn more about your personal background. You actually grew up in the US, got your BA and MBA in finance in the United States, but also in Spain. So I wonder, why did you decide to go and study abroad? What did you take away from that experience? It was actually a really important experience in my life in retrospect. I think at the time, my parents were both Europeans and I kind of wanted to go and and uh, go to Europe and I didn't want to get stuck living with one of my relatives. So I picked another country and I picked Spain. <laughs> and in retrospect, it, it really changed my life. It changed the way I view myself and, and how I interact with other people. You become a lot more observant when you're a foreigner in a, in a, lang- in a country at that young of age. I can imagine. And then you also continued your international travel. You worked for 10 years at Sulzer, a mm-hmm. Swiss-based company, as the head of M&A. So first of all, how did you then end up in Switzerland? That's also quite an interesting journey. Yeah, so I um, actually never thought I would end up in a German-speaking country. But I, um, after graduate school, I got my first job at uh, Bankverein in Chicago, um, because I'm originally from Chicago, and people from Chicago don't go to New York. And so I started there, and after three months, they sent me to New York. And I met my husband, who's Swiss. He was also working at the bank at the time. Fantastic. So talking about your role as head of M&A at Sulzer, what was your focus there in terms of M&A activities? That was in the 90s, um, you know, back in the beginning of the 90s, Sulzer was still a very, very diversified conglomerate, had, a, you know, I don't know, 60 different divisions, um, a lot of them that were subcritical. Um, and so during the 90s, we did a major restructuring of Sulzer. Um, and really, in the end, we had two holding companies, a medical device company, which we IPO'd, and the... Um, industrial technology company, which exists today as Sulzer, right? And so I did, you know, I had a team of about 12 people. We did dozens and dozens and dozens of strategy projects and then the transactions uh, to implement those strategies. Great. Did startups also play any role in in these strategic acquisitions? You know, that's unfortunately not. They didn't, you know, big companies back then didn't really pay attention to startups. And um, I think the whole idea of open innovation came, unfortunately, afterwards. And it was only after I left Sulzer that I realized, you know, had we been more aware of the startups, we could have actually made a lot more progress in our strategies than what we did. Right. And you mentioned you left Sulzer, so you then switched to becoming an investor yourself. What actually motivated you to join the investor side? Well, first of all, you know, I had a fantastic career at Sulzer. I I really thank my mentors that I had when I was there. Um, It was a great time. But, you know, being the head of M&A during a restructuring is super exciting. And then one day you're done restructuring and then it's not so exciting. Um, So I decided to leave and I um, 
I just wanted to, I wanted to do something that combined transactions with strategic purpose. And at Sulzer, we had already started to get involved in a lot of environmental technology. So I was a bit introduced to environmental technologies, but really on the industrial tech side. Got it. And then in 2000, you actually started to fund clean tech ventures. Mm -hmm. I think there was a quote from you out there where you say you were a first time team running a first time fund in a sector that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. So I just wonder what was going through your mind at that time. So that must have been a really challenging, but also exciting time. Yeah. And, it, you know, to be quite honest, I was a bit naive. I didn't realize that the sector didn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, when I when I took the job, I was you know handed a sheet of paper that said sustainability and venture capital. And that's perhaps a little bit of my American upbringing. I thought, oh, how difficult can it be? Right. Um, just try it. Even if you fail, you know, it's not like you go to jail at the end. Right. So um, I just thought, well, I'll try it. And, you know, back then, you could, well, we didn't even have Google, right? But you can go on the internet all you want. The problem is that the internet was pretty empty. So almost nothing came, came back, if you'd like. So I didn't even know really that much about venture capital. Um, but I wanted, you know, I, I was really intrigued with innovation. Um, but of course, you know, having spent 10 years in industrial tech, I wanted to stay within that, within that sector. So that was a, um, the motivation for me was uh, about trying to find a job where you can combine strategy and transactions mm -hmm. with something that you can you know, understand and believe in. Right. So you mentioned that you had the motivation to actually you know, pursue that path, but I can imagine there's also a lot of new things to learn on the job. So how do you actually train yourself to then also be ready as an investor? Uh, yeah, you make a lot of mistakes along the way, right? <laughs> so, uh, I mean, you know, our, our first fund, we, we were doing early stage investments. I don't know what we were thinking. Um, it was, you know, we were really euphoric. We actually thought, you know, this was around the time that the dot-com bubble burst. Right. And so we were thinking, well, yeah, of course, I mean, that's not real stuff. That's, you know, clicks and, and you know, yeah. websites and stuff. We're investing in real things. And, and when I said real back then, I was thinking, real big, heavy, capital intensive, which is exactly what you should not be doing with venture capital, right? <laughs> um, but we learned, we learned quickly. And um, yeah, I think, you know, not being shy to ask, uh, to ask questions. I mean, you can't be good at everything, right? So you spend, you spend time, you know, honing skills in one area it means that you didn't spend the time honing skills in another area. So uh, try to surround yourself with other people who who know more, right? Exactly. And you then also did actually a management buyout a bit later down the road after you built or helped build the company. Mm -hmm. So why was doing a management buyout the right decision for you and how do you actually execute that? Well, yeah, so I was part of, or, or we were part of Sustainable Asset Management, which was, um, you know, they're the ones who launched the Dow Jones Sustainability Index, so extremely well known and a real pioneer in the whole sustainability area. Also had public equity funds. Um, and so it was more of an asset management company. Um, and the metrics in asset management is, you know, about 
you make money off of management fees, the more assets under management per headcount. Um, and when we were in discussions with the different acquirers, it became uh, quite apparent to me that they didn't understand the economics of venture capital. And they didn't actually understand that venture capital is not that scalable of a model. And I just felt that they would have dismantled it. I felt like they would have required me as the head of that uh, division to do things that are, are actually not in the best interest of either our investors or the entrepreneurs. So it was more of a, a desire to not go into a negative situation um, than a desire to be my own boss, if you like. I, I was actually perfectly happy at sustainable asset management. I think if they were not sold to the bank, we would probably still today be part of that. Um, so it, yeah, so I think it's just you know not not allowing yourself to become a victim of of you know unfortunate circumstances and find another uh, way out. Right, um, and it's the best thing that happened to us at the time. We thought, oh no, but it was actually fantastic. Right. And you also you basically stuck working with the pretty much the same people that you you know got to know back then in the company. Mm -hmm. That's also an important success factor, I can imagine. So, what what is sort of your recipe for success? Why do you still work with almost the same people from oh, back yeah. then? It's incredible. I mean, there's quite a few of us here who've been working together for you know 20 years. A lot of them for 15, 16 years. Um, you know, each one of us actually brings a different skill set to the table. Mm -hmm. and, and this is something that I think you can still afford to do as a small company, is make sure that each person has their own area of expertise and that they shine in that area and they don't have to compete with their colleagues for sunshine, right? Um, there's a lot of mutual respect uh, within the different team members because nobody in the team has the same background as anyone else in the team. Nobody is replaceable by their colleague, right? And I think that that just fosters a much better teamwork. Um, you know, that's why people stay here. And also, I think from a from a um, authority or, or influence, maybe, maybe influence is a better word, a point of view, there's there's a lot of uh, distributed influence and impact within the team. So somebody who is a sector specialist, um, let's say you have a sector specialist in a water technology company, um, even if I absolutely love the company, you know what, they're the water specialist. If they don't, right. we are not investing in this company. It doesn't matter what my title is, right? Um, I, you have to respect the opinion of the specialist. Otherwise, get rid of them. They're very expensive, right? So, sure. um, so that's I think that's part of the reason why let let people have an area where they shine, and let them feel that they can directly influence the decisions, and then have an impact at the end. And I think that that's probably been you know the, the main reason why people stay here. That really sort of uncovers your unique culture that you built up over the years. So that's very impressive. I also wonder, you mentioned just the, the investment decision. So how do you actually make investment decisions with your team? Oh, that's actually quite interesting. So so the all the deals that, let's say, belong to a particular sector, let's call it, you know, marine electrification, right? So all of those deals go to one of the sector specialists who actually either the guy who covers a marine or the guy who covers the, the battery side, right? Yeah. Or they work together um, to cover something. And it's really only if they decide that this company from a market 
uh, opportunity and competitive advantage and value proposition point of view mm -hmm. if they think it's worthy of taking it to the next step, right? Yeah. And then they bring it to the team. We have the entire team um, on our Monday calls um, discussing the deals and, um, and then we'd vote. And the, there's in the Industrial Innovation Fund, there's four people who are on the investment committee. Mm -hmm. And the way that we vote is actually also quite uh, interesting. And that came out of a learning process as well is, you know, we used to vote yes or no. Right. Yes. Um, the problem is, is that if, if your colleagues really, really like something and you don't, you know, you don't you haven't spent any time really doing due diligence on this company yet it's too early right it's very difficult to kill something that you know you don't really have the facts to kill it right mm -hmm. so what we found is that too many deals were progressing and sometimes ending up being investments and nobody was really that excited about them or most of the people weren't so we changed our voting structure and now we vote one to five um, and the deal has to have an average score of a four to pass, which means that there has to be sufficient excitement across everybody. But it also means that most of the time, one person not liking something, but if everybody else really likes it, it can still go through. Right. Got it. And how many people do vote on these decisions? Is it just the, the four managers of the fund that you mentioned before, or are there more people actually voting on, on the specific case? The actual voting is defined. So that, that has to be the investment committee of a particular fund. Okay. So our water fund, there's five of us. The industrial innovation fund, there's four. Packaging fund, there's six. Energy fund, there's five. So it depends on who, which fund we actually have, who's, uh, who's on the investment committee. Um, and that's then a contractual obligation vis-a-vis -vis our investors. Right. So today you are an industrial tech fund. Mm -hmm. You focus on clean tech, but also open innovation. Mm -hmm. So what are you particularly excited about in these areas these days? So where do you see, you know, big trends or something that's really getting your attention? You know, if I if I look at the different areas that we're invested in, right? The, um, I mean, in the energy side still, electrification, right? And and I realize everybody knows about passenger car electrification, but I'm talking about the electrification of everything, right? So we're um, invested in companies that have to do, you know, charging uh, technologies for heavy equipment, right? Um, and uh, marine electrification is another big area for us. Aerospace, so satellite launchers, electrification, anything around that electrification theme, whether it has to do with the battery technology, the control systems, the um, the types of, of uh, let's say, equipment and components, software that's needed to manage that, and also the infrastructure. That's super exciting. Um, on the material side, I think our real excitement right now is in sustainable packaging. Mm -hmm. We have been looking at this sector for 20 years, and even though we found really interesting entrepreneurs in interesting technologies, we just didn't feel like the market was ready to adopt it. Because that's, that's, of course, the, the negative side, if you'd like, of B2B businesses, right? If the industrial incumbents do not want to adopt a technology, it doesn't get adopted, right? right. It's not like you're selling you know, Facebook to teenagers, right? Um, this is, you know, they actually have the power to block innovation if they want to. Um, and now we finally feel like there's, we're, you know, we're at a tipping point that 
these, you know, these large incumbents, whether it's all the way up the value chain from the petrochemical guys through the converters, the consumer brands guys, and retailers, eh, they're a little bit less concerned about it, but the waste management guys, right? Um, we finally feel like there's, that they feel under pressure regulatory pressure, consumer sentiment, um, and they're looking for alternatives, right? Of course, the plastic makers think that the problem is on the waste management side, so they want that to be fixed. And the waste management guys think the problem is, you know, the molecules that were entering into the system way back up the value chain, right? right? Yeah. So everybody wants innovation to happen kind of in a different part of the value chain that doesn't really impact their core business, right? right. But they all do recognize that there is a serious, serious problem with plastic waste. And, um, and I think now we're at a tipping point where there's enough momentum. And so we're, yeah, so we've got now a sustainable packaging fund to focus uh, specifically on that. Great. So timing seems to be a really important key factor of making the right investment decision. You cannot directly influence the timing, but you can try to assess it in the right way. So do you have mm -hmm. any tips about how to read and also understand the timing the right way? Yeah, you know, and, and this goes back to kind of the learnings from our um, beginnings where we were actually quite naive. You know, just because you believe that something should happen doesn't mean it's going to happen. <laughs> Even if all of the, the analysis leads you to that conclusion. So today we say we want the entrepreneurs or the startup companies to have at least three commercial customers, right? Um, there's a few, a few uh, results that come out of that. Um, it's really a proxy for us to judge, first of all, is there really some market demand? Do we have people who are using the technology that we can talk to? Mm -hmm. Does the company have a pipeline? Are those people that maybe, maybe we can even introduce them to other customers, right? And then we can, as part of our due diligence, we can see how that process is um, evolving. The other thing is, does the business model work? Is their pricing right? Do they really understand the uh, technology adoption cycle, right? So it's this whole learning, because I don't believe that management teams lie to us. I, I really do believe that they are just unbelievably overly optimistic and we need them to be right but you know it's kind of shame on us if we don't you know <laughs> uh, recognize that if you like and, and do enough due diligence around it to kind of bring it to more realistic assumptions but if the team has gone through that learning process um then when we come in, then it's typically, you know, we can say we're much more aligned about uh, how they should proceed to build up the business. If they are, you know, have just absolutely wildly unrealistic expectations about pricing, you know, business model, uh, technology adoption cycles, then it, it will probably be a failure, right? Um, and it's hard for us to convince them that it's going to be a failure before it actually fails if we've given them money and they don't have really their back to the wall, right? And so I would even say that in the early years, we probably were doing a disservice to these early stage companies by giving them money, um, which allowed them, if you'd like, to ignore the market signals and not pivot early enough. 
right? And they would just tell us, well, it's just taking longer. It's just taking longer. Just give us more money. And actually, it wasn't taking much longer. It wasn't working. That's the lesson that they should have been learning and they should have been pivoting. Right. Um, so today, if we if we invest in a company that has three commercial customers, by then they've done an, their own pivoting. Right. Right. So talking about product market fit to a certain degree, right? Yeah, definitely. definitely. How do you actually find the companies that you invest in? Do they reach out to you over the contact form on, on your website? Do you get a lot of introductions to companies or how does it work? Yeah. So, we, you know, we've been around for a long time. So a lot of people in the industry know us. Um, you can Google us today. You know, you can yes. Google and find <laughs> us very quickly. Um, so we get about 2,000 business plans a year. Wow. And um, and I would say, you know, one we're, we're a meritocracy through and through. So you don't need a warm introduction to get into our pipeline. You can write to info at Emerald and we'll give you just as much attention as if you were my next door neighbor. Right. So so, um, so any any good company can just find us, you know, on the on the internet, write to us on the website, and there we have it. But of our deal flow, um, I would say about a third of it, though, still we actually go out and proactively find because uh, the sector specialists that I referred to before, because they have a certain thesis, they have a certain conviction, um, and then they go out and they try to find all of the companies. Um, that could possibly be delivering solutions uh, to a specific topic. Mm-hmm. And uh, so a third of our deal flow is, uh, you know, proactively sourced from our side. Got it. And, you know, have you also ever regretted making an investment or not making an investment? Definitely making an investment. <laughs> <laughs> not making an investment, you know. I don't. I don't really... I'm not the kind of person who looks in the rearview mirror and regrets much. You know, I you know I always say look forward with confidence and back without regrets, right? Because you took the best decision based on the information available at the time. And you know, there have been deals that we at the time had judged as too risky and you know what all of the stars aligned and that company ended up being wildly successful and still I would say today it was still too risky, right? Because the probability of all the stars aligning was just too low for us, right? Um, so I try not to look, in, and once we sell shares in a company, you know, if the company goes public and we sell our shares, I never look at the share price afterwards. I think, no, just, you know, you can't second, you can, can't spend your life second guessing yourself, right? And your team. Um, but definitely there have been times where we have really been just really too bold for our own good and gotten the timing wrong as well. Um, and so there were definitely were companies, companies that we shouldn't have backed, but I would say even more so people that we shouldn't have backed. Okay. And how do you then, you know, deal with that after you realize it? I, I guess that's also like, you know, dragging on, on you on a psychological level yeah, a bit where you feel, hey, painful. I'm not feeling very well about <laughs> exactly. that decision. So how do you deal about that? It's a very painful process. Yeah, you realize it kind of, it kind of comes, you know, slowly, and you start to kind of put certain pieces to the puzzle together, and you just think, oh no, this isn't good, right? Um, and then you know, obviously, don't you know, don't put more money at risk. Don't throw money at them to to solve the problem unless you really, really believe that that money is going to be able to solve the problem. If it's a people problem, I would say you're, you're best, you know, just try to get out, right? And and I would say that's another thing about professionality and venture capital, right? If a company 
if we lose faith in a company mm -hmm. and we decide that we are not going to participate in the follow-on financing rounds, you know what we do? We actually give our shares to the other to our co-investors, mm -hmm. and we tell them, you know, pay us whatever the lawyer is going to charge us for drafting the, the documents. You know, we wish you good luck. We're out of here. We hope we were wrong. We hope everybody is really successful. Yeah. But, you know, we, we pass. And I think it's important for VCs to also, you know, go through the consequences, right? Mm -hmm. You shouldn't just drop a startup company and no longer think that your co-investors are going to to finance a struggling company, right? Um, if you don't believe in the company, own up to it, be a big boy or big girl, resign from the board, sell your shares and move on and let them move on as well. It's also horrible for a startup company to be dragging along investors who have lost faith in them, right? And who are just gonna be kind of obstructionists, if you like, going forward. Um, so I think that that's also, that's also important to own up to the fact that you, you've lost faith, right? For whatever reason. Um, and, and yeah, just move on. Um, but, but also we spend quite a bit of time going through lessons learned um, because there's so many opportunities to make mistakes. I always say, just make new ones. Don't make the same ones, right? And in order to do that, you have to have a very, very open culture um, where everybody in the team can, can reflect and share um, their reflections on what could I or we have done differently? How will we approach this next time, right? Um, it's not about assigning blame, um, but it's about learning, right? And that's one thing is that there's no assignment of deals here. Nobody, this is, you know, a company is nobody's deal. It's everybody's deal, right? And I will even switch people from boards, right? Um, we don't want to have this attribution because then you start to get these prima donnas who all of a sudden, you know, kind of think that everything they touch is turned to gold, which I think is, is a risk, a, a real risk in a venture capital firm. Well, I'm just amazed by how you solve these issues and these challenges. That's really <laughs> impressive. I also, <laughs> I also, yeah, exactly. A lot of experience, but at the same time, also, you first have to reach that conclusion and also execute on it. So that's mm -hmm. really impressive. Mm -hmm. So I also wonder, what does a company have to do to sort of lose your trust? Are there any, you know, bad things that can happen? Or when do you actually say, hey, this mm -hmm. doesn't work for us. Uh, we're basically leaving the company. Well, I think the single biggest mistake an entrepreneur can make is to not be transparent, right? I always, before we, we make investments in, let's say, in non-COVID times where we would actually physically meet the entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. I would take them across the street to my favorite restaurant. I would have dinner with them and I would tell them, shit is going to happen. I can't tell you what shit it's going to be, but it's going <laughs> to happen, right? And that's okay. We have seen this film before. We've seen so many different variations of this film before, right? Just be honest with us. If something isn't working, if you start to have failures into the field, tell us. If you have, you know, a, a receivable that's going bad and you're going to run out of cash, the sooner you tell us about the problems, the more options we have to solve those problems together. If you keep those problems away from us, first of all, I don't understand why you would be doing that because we're in the business of dealing with companies that have problems, right? So, but you know, there are, there are entrepreneurs or, who just for own pride 
um, reasons they don't want to admit that something is going wrong. And the longer they wait, the more difficult it becomes for us to even solve the problem. So, so they're basically, they're eliminating our options over time, yeah. right? Until we get to a point where we, you know, if we finally find out and it might be too late. And there have been several cases like that where we've told the entrepreneurs afterwards, if you had only told us earlier, we could have solved this, right? Um, you know, just just be honest. We're in this together, right? Nobody wants to 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 see this company fail. Exactly. Wow. Talking about obstacles and challenges, which you have seen plenty um, of, there's also a big challenge that you sort of see here in, in Switzerland or face in Switzerland, especially with the Swiss mindset. Mm-hmm. You know, I think when we did the prep call, you mentioned that, you know, Swiss people, they could think bigger and also have bigger ambitions mm-hmm. for their own companies. So what's the challenge that you see here? Yeah, I think that, you know, the typical the typical Swiss startup that we see, and, and I'm when I say, when I describe them, it's always relative to the rest, right, right. that we see. And we see, you know, 95% of our deal flow is probably outside of Switzerland. So it's a big universe out there, right? Um, the typical Swiss startup has a very, very young management team. Um just coming out of the you know university or the ETH, um, we're an industrial tech, right? This isn't. I always say nobody's going to buy a solid oxide fuel cell from a twenty-five-year-old, right? So they underestimate the value of experience, of connections, of again business model, pricing, all these things that that are the idiosyncrasies of a particular sector, right? They're not going to change the way the electric grid works overnight, right? I mean, there are incumbents there. Believe me, they've got a lot of money. They will make sure that it doesn't change overnight, right? Um, so first of all, I think that, that they're, they're typically um, lacking experience. Lots of enthusiasm, but enthusiasm doesn't replace experience. Um, and they're obsessed with control. Um, they don't have the... They're not aligned with us. They don't want to actually go out and dominate the world, right? Or maybe they just don't understand what it takes to dominate the world, right? So they want to raise just a small amount of money. They don't want anyone, you know, kind of uh, interfering. You know, they they are actually over overly confident about their own abilities and completely underestimating the challenge at hand, right? And so they typically want to raise less money, rather con- maintain control, rather have their, you know, their vague buddies uh, in the management team, even though they have zero experience, you know. I mean, often we see, you know, in a typical tech or you know industrial tech startup in Switzerland, you know, you say, well, who's the CFO? Oh, he was also, you know, he has a, an engineering degree. I'm like, how about like somebody who has some finance degree, right? What do you right. think about that, right? <laughs> um, no, no, we don't, you know, that would be a different school. Um, so that's, you know, so it's just this, un, this, yeah, I don't, if, if they're just ignorant about what it really takes to be successful, but they don't, they're not raising enough money. They will even say no, which I think is like the cardinal sin. Hey, if somebody's offering you money, take it, right? You will need it. And 
Even if today you don't know what you can do with it, well, then you should have enough ideas about how you can create value with extra money. And maybe you don't end up owning 40% of the company, you only own 10% of the company at the end, but it's a much, much bigger company. Right. And the value of your 10% is, you know, I don't know how many times more than 40% than you, 20% your buddy, and then you guys control the company, right? So it's this too small, their ambition is too small or it's or it's naive as far as what it actually takes. Yeah, probably a combination of both. Yeah. You also mentioned that, you know, you're also running the, the Bürgschaft uh, Fonds, mm -hmm. so to speak. So there you also really have to sort of motivate people to take your mm -hmm. money. And that's <laughs> just impressive. I mean, you have money, you have money to distribute. You compare that to the U.S. where what would happen in the U.S. Yeah, if you had money to distribute? Would, people would be running down our door, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so the government, so the, it's actually from the BAFL and the BFA, they have the Technologie Fund, which is a Brickshaft uh, program. So it's a debt guarantee program. So the, the, the loans actually come from the banks. Zedkopi is a fantastic partner there. I mean, they mm -hmm. give a lot of startups um, uh, loans and the guarantee comes from the Swiss government, right? And we are responsible for managing that program. And we have to actually, it's, it's amazing. We have to go out and motivate SMEs in Switzerland to even apply for it. Yeah. And the, and the, I can't even say what the pass rate is, but it's really high, right? Yeah, right. If you think if you think <laughs> that on the venture side we get two thousand yeah. deals a year, and we invest in probably five, right? Yeah. On the on the debt guarantee side for Switzerland, the hit rate is much much higher, um, and the startups seem to have you know found us. So we have a lot of. Unfortunately, the program wasn't set up for startups, so it's a little bit uh, you know kind of on the edge of what that program should be doing. Mm -hmm. It's really. Uh, you know what we really want also are established companies um, who are you know developing and commercializing technology which will make a contribution to the CO2 law goals right, right. so there's so many um, you know middle-sized companies in Switzerland that could benefit from it they obviously just have to have an idea about what they can do with that money mm -hmm. um, but it's it's a fantastic program we've already um, given uh, debt guarantees to over a hundred Swiss companies so that's really exciting Nice. So in that regard, what do you think we as Switzerland or in general can be done to make Swiss founders or Swiss SME leaders more ambitious? I think they need more role models, right? They need to see more people within their social circles being successful, leaving, you know, also experienced people, right? I said before about, you know, you really can't under underestimate the, the value of that. Yeah. Um, the So to get people who are, you know, in their, let's say, late 30s, in their 40s, um, who already have gained quite a bit of experience in an industrial sector to get them to leave their jobs and to join a startup, yeah. right? That needs to be socially acceptable. That needs to be even, you know, just like how Switzerland looks up to people with technical backgrounds. I mean, I think there's a lot mm -hmm. of really positive um, aspects of the society here um, to that drives innovation, but it doesn't drive entrepreneurship. Right. Um, and like I said, you know, if, if you're talking about B2C in, you know, 
you know, tech companies, maybe you don't need all of the, that industrial experience. I don't want to speak for those people. I'm not in that sector, but I'm just making that as an example. Right. But in the industrial sector, you do need that experience, right? So if, if, if the media, if society would give more um, awareness and, and pride in entrepreneurs, right? And we, and if it was talked about more, if people would, you know, I go to Israel quite often. Every taxi driver in Israel knows a successful entrepreneur. He's going to tell you the whole story all the way from the airport, right? <laughs> um, and they know some VCs too, right? So it's like the the society there, you know, thrives on the fact that they had these successful entrepreneurs who created something really, you know, world dominating out of nothing. And, and, and they're looked up to not, you know, the, the chairman of the board of some bank, right? Some big bank. They're, they're really looking up to entrepreneurs and that motivates people that, you know, just like when you're little and you say, Oh, I want to be a fireman. You know, it's because you think, wow, people really value firemen, right? Um, you, you want to choose a profession that you think society values, right? And if society would put more value on those entrepreneurs, I think it would attract, um, you know, better qualified people, um, and we would have more startups and hopefully more successful startups and really kind of world-dominating startups as well, right? I mean, the same, the same phenomena happens, let's say, in education, where you say, okay, we're not valuing teachers enough and not paying them enough, so you're not attracting the top talent, right? You can say it's a little bit the same phenomena, I think, in Switzerland with the entrepreneurs. Before we continue with the show, we would like to introduce you to our new partner, Nuco. Nuco helps founders navigate the paperwork that starting a company involves. From the first consultation all the way to the commercial register, Nuco has helped more than 900 entrepreneurs start their company, and they do so at highly competitive prices. To find out more, visit nuco.ch slash Swisspreneur. Again, that's nuco.ch slash Swisspreneur. And now, on with the show. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see how we tackle that issue and how we hopefully change it for, for the better. Well, you're making a contribution, so that's very good. Hopefully we, we can measure the impact. Huh? <laughs> exactly. Um, at the same time, you're also a board member at a very large number of startups. Can it ever get too much? Uh, in terms of yeah. amount of board memberships? I think, you know, I, I um, we have kind of a, a rule of thumb here that nobody should have more than five, maximum six boards. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are times where, you know, companies, you know, they're, they're doing extremely well. I mean, one of my, one of my companies, I mean, they, they hardly need me, you know, other than for governance, they don't need, need a whole lot of support. We supported them for many years. Mm-hmm. They're doing extremely well. For many reasons, it's not right now the right time to, to exit the company. And so it's a little bit kind of a low maintenance. Uh, now it's a low maintenance portfolio company. Um, but you can have a situation where you've got three portfolio companies on fire, right? Um, so I, I'm not a big fan of people just, you know, sitting on eight or 10 boards because I think how much value can you really be adding? Um, and, and you have to also proactively, it shouldn't be reactive. It shouldn't be that you're just adding, you know, you're just, let's say, 
dealing with the company because they're in a bad situation. You should be dealing with the company when they're in a good situation, bringing them more customers, helping right. them, you know, negotiate alliances, helping them secure, you know, funding from banks, helping them with their financing rounds. That's the other thing is that when we invest in a company, we feel almost more responsible for securing their financing going forward than the management. I would prefer management focuses on the business, on hitting their milestones. Let us worry about investors. We'll we'll find new investors. We'll, you know, if the company's on track and stuff, we know lots of people. We can make sure that the company's finance going forward. So you should, you know, you should have the not just the the competence and capability, but you have to also have the capacity, the time to invest in these companies. And uh, yeah, I think that that's super important. That's why we have such a large team. If you look, we've got 20 active portfolio companies and we've got a team of 33 people. Yep. That's a good ratio. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Another challenge that I can think of is, you know, as investors, sooner or later, you need to have an exit to have actually a liquidation event to pay back your investors. Right. So has there also been a challenging situation where you said, hey, now the price is good to, to do an IPO or to, to exit and to sell the company, while the management team still wanted to continue and was not fully aligned in, in that regard? Is this oh, yeah. also oh, a yeah. challenge that you face? Oh, yeah. That's, this is very, quite a common, a common challenge. So it is, it's important that we keep everybody uh, aligned and we're quite we're quite open right at the beginning we make sure the entrepreneurs understand how venture capital works this mm-hmm. is not my private money i cannot decide to just stay invested in the company forever right this is other people's money and our investors are all major corporations so it's a little bit different than the typical pension fund or institutional investor but but still we you know in order for the the venture capital fund to continue um, to exist, you need to have exits. And so we were very uh, open with management at the very beginning before we invest what the timeline should be. We have annual exit strategy meetings with the entire board and the management to make sure everybody stays online. But even despite all of that, you can still get in a situation where management just thinks, just they just get comfortable. It's not, it's not that they think that the timing, they may say, oh, timing is not right. The truth is they want to just stay independent. Right. And I'm not a bank. I, you can't you can't just buy my shares back at, you know, three percent interest or six yeah, percent right. interest. That's not my model. Right. Yeah. Uh, we need to have serious exits. Right. So um, so we do usually have mechanisms in there that will force them to actually sell the company. And if you have those mechanisms in there, you almost never need to use them because everybody knows they're there and they know the consequences if they don't live up to their end of the bargain. Because that's what it is, right? If you actually don't want to sell your company or IPO your company ever, then don't take venture capital money because that's that's part of the deal, right? You're going to get me in trouble with my investors if, you know, it's like, like I said, it's not my private money, right? I don't have the luxury of, you know, sitting on 300 million euros and deciding that I'm going to stay there forever, right? So, um, and and also we have an ever we have an evergreen fund structure, but we still need exits in order for the recycling to work, right? Mm-hmm. If all of a sudden I wasn't having exits, I would not be able to make new investments, and right. then everyone would go home, right? Exactly. <laughs> and I wouldn't know, I wouldn't have a business anymore. Um, so that's not good. So I think, I think entrepreneurs also have to live up to their end of the bargain. And that is to stay on track with an exit strategy. Do you have an average time frame when you aim for an exit? 
we, you know, it's, it's probably, the average is probably four to five years, mm -hmm. but there are definitely companies that get, um, that get sold sooner um, just because, you know, the sector gets super hot and, and within 12 or 18 months, which is really fast in industrial tech, <laughs> you know, you, you end up selling the company. There's others where you're invested for 10 years, okay. but you still mm -hmm. believe in the company. You still think, okay, I'm not going to just write this off and walk away. It's still a valuable company. It's just because of certain market dynamics, it's just very difficult to sell the company. Right. They're too small for an IPO. So you still stay um, invested. Um, and as long as they're profitable and they're not costing you more money, you can afford to play that game for a little while longer. Um, but I mean, if you get to eight or 10 years invested in a company, I mean, something's gone wrong, right? You should have been gone a long time ago. <laughs> Got it. And yeah, talking about investors, where does your money actually come from that you then invest yourself? Yeah. Well, you mentioned before about open innovation. So we mm -hmm. took the decision. You know, when, when we first started out, we took money from anybody who would give it to us. So there was, you know, <laughs> there were high net worth individuals, there were pension funds, insurance companies, some corporates. And I thank them all for, you know, having the, the um, being so bold as to invest in the first time fund first-time team in a sector that doesn't exist. Um, but, um, but we took the decision uh, in around 2016 to focus just on corporates. Um, so we, all of our investors are large industrial corporations. Um, we are typically part of their open innovation uh, strategy where they're trying to get into uh, relationships with startup companies um, mm -hmm. to, you know, because they want, they need to build up a supplier in a new technology area, or they want to be the sales distribution. They think that this is something that they could combine, you know, with when they're selling their product. They want to use the technology to improve their operations. So there's many, many different ways. People often think, oh, they just want to buy you. Ah, they don't, I mean, it's seldom that they want to buy, that they want to actually own the startup company. They want to work with the startup company. And that's where we can also add a lot of value, right? Because we've got 35 of these large industrial uh, technology companies, plus many others where we've got really close relationships with. And so when we're looking at a startup, we can already start to introduce them to people who will be very interesting for them. And so even at the end of the day, if we decide to not invest at least it wasn't a net negative for the company. At least they, they met some new potential customers or alliance partners and whatnot. Um, so for us, you know, we, we invest um, as a fund, we invest for financial returns, right? Um, but our investors are investing in our fund for strategic returns. And that's why it's also important that we don't limit, if you'd like, the relationships that they can have with our portfolio companies, but we open it up to the 2000 a year that we're receiving. And we try to do kind of like a little bit of matchmaking um, with them and the startup companies. Even if we say, oh, companies, you know, value's too high. It's too late stage, too early stage. We, you know, we've never done a, a you know, jurisdiction is difficult for us. You know, whatever the, the other venture capital reasons might be, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a good technology and it's not a good fit for the corporate. So if we can, you know, put those two parties together and they can create something of value afterwards, well, then everybody's happy. Job done. Exactly. They're happy. I'm happy. And how does your business model look like? Do you also charge uh, the regular management and, and success fee or how does it work? 
We yeah, we have a management fee um, like other funds, um, and we have a carried interest, so part of the the profits. Um, you know, maybe this is maybe going back to kind of being naive when I came into this. I took the term management fee literally, and every time we get a new investor, we hire more people. So <laughs> you really do need the management fee just to feed all the mouths at the table here. Right. Um, and uh, you know, and for us, the the carried interest is upside. Uh, our a philosophy is not that we should be making a lot of profits on management fees. We should be making profits on the upside of, you know, of making really good investments. And that's where our model probably doesn't fit very well in a big bank. And, you know, in that regard, you're also not really addressing a mainstream topic, not yet, maybe mm -hmm. in the future, who knows. So therefore, you're also not a mega fund, which makes it also more difficult for you to attract institutional investors, for example. So mm -hmm. is that a challenge for you or is that even good luck for you because you say we don't want to work with them anyways? Yeah, you know, and, and we uh, we often get, especially now that everybody's like all into this clean, well, they're calling it climate tech now. It's the same thing, but you know, it's clean tech, climate tech, whatever, the green tech. Um, we're getting now contacted by a lot of institutionals because it's really difficult to find a VC fund specialized in this area that has a really good track record, financial right. track record. Um, so they do contact us. Um, we're a little bit kind of reluctant to, you know, to get into discussions with them because we don't feel that most of the time we don't feel that they're really aligned with us as far as what they, you know, when we, when I talk to my investors, I want them to be as excited about what we're doing as we are, right? I don't want them to just say, hey, just send me the quarterly report and I don't want to see you, right? We don't get much love out of that or you know, it's not very, not very much fun. It's really fun. The, the corporates are, are, high maintenance i realize that but they're fun and yeah it's exciting to work with them um but to go back to the issue of a mega fund i mean that would actually be a disadvantage our sector is not you know there aren't that many good deals that you can be deploying five six hundred million i mean if people you know announce oh we're going to do a billion dollar you know clean tech fund i just think oh my god this is going to be a train wreck right? Um, we are globally active. We've been doing this for 20 years, and it's hard for us to find more than five companies to invest. In. I mean, we have more money, right? It's not that we're trying to save that money for something else, right? I mean, it would be great if we were making 10 investments a year. It's just really, really difficult to find um, good investments in this in this sector that we think can deliver venture returns, right? Um, so you know, I hope that I hope that that changes over time. I hope you know we launched a water fund last year, and we capped it at a hundred million. And in our, you know, investor, one of the investors in it said, you know, I mean, can't we make it like 200 or 300? I said, look, we're talking about the water sector, okay? Let's see, let's see if we can deploy the 100 million, right? And then once that's well deployed, then we can talk about making it bigger. But for right now, 100 million in the water sector is more than enough, right? Um, and I think, you know, people shouldn't be greedy, right? I mean, you need to be able to, to deliver returns at the end of the day. Sure. You know, if, if it ends up being that you have found so many fantastic deals and you're able to also exit those so you have realized returns, hey, if you're on that much of a, you know, of a great streak, you'll get more money, right? Sure. Um, but I think, 
you know, wanting to be a mega fund just for the ego of being a mega fund, I think is, is, is you know, is kind of self-destructive if you like, right? Uh -huh. um, we have now, you know, over 300 million. It's, it's a great amount for our sector. Um, and we do, and we do deals globally, right? Um, so if somebody wants to, you know, just focus on Switzerland, um, you know, then you get a, a real problem, right? Because you don't, you'll have a, there's not enough good deal flow to deploy money or de to deploy a lot of money, but then you can't run around with a 20 million fund, right? I mean, so you can't, you know, you can't be that geographically restrictive. You need to, to actually look at a much larger geographic area. So I think that's interesting because it's sort of um, another advice that you would give to your, to your startup companies, right? If they get money offered, take it and do something great with it. In your case, it could even be destructive in the long run. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, when they usually, um, you know, they're in a business which that will allow them to scale. Like I said before, venture capital isn't that scalable, mm -hmm. right? I can't, I can't just... If I got more money, you know, if I got double the money tomorrow, I can't make double the investments. Yeah. It just, there's not enough supply out there, right? right? I need more supply. Yeah. Spend the money, give it to, to accelerators and help them out, right? Sure. Um, to, so that we have a better supply in the future, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it, so it is a little bit of a paradox there, right? I mean, I hope that, that it improves. I hope that, you know, that there are more entrepreneurs. I mean, there's innovation. I'm not worried about uh, lack of innovation. But there needs to be a lot more really good entrepreneurs. There need to be really good accelerators out there um, to, that help these companies to get to to that you know com commercialization. Um, then the money will come. You know, I mean, it, people who tell me, "Oh, there isn't enough money," and that that's not true. I mean, sure, if you know, it, sometimes you can say that because it's self-serving, and then you get more money. But the truth is, is that if there's a fantastic Swiss startup mm -hmm. that has, you know, a fantastic team, fantastic value proposition, great market potential, and they need to raise, you know, 40 million, we'll find the 40 million. Yeah. That's not a problem, right? It's, exactly. You know, that's, that we will bring people, I'm not saying they're going to come from Switzerland, but people will sure. come, right? Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, sometimes you have to also be a little bit more self-critical and, and ask, you know, is it because we actually don't deserve that much money? Um, because how is it that, you know, other small countries as well have some startups that have raised a lot of money and been have tremendously successful, right? I'm not going to say that there haven't been any Swiss examples. I'm sure there are, um, but you, we need more of those. We need a, a lot more of those. So I, I really think that, you know, as this, uh, as the entrepreneurship improves, then the amount of money that one can deploy will improve. And so the sector will grow. It's just, you know, it's taken time, right? Our first fund 20 years ago, right? And it was, you know, a third, uh, I think we we're managing about a third of the money we're managing today. Um, so it doesn't, you know, it doesn't double every every 12 months, right? Um, but we're getting there. We're in the, we're on the right trajectory. And obviously the financial crisis, uh, you know, really just knocked the sector completely to square one, right? So it was almost a restart after the financial crisis. But despite the restart, you also had two hype cycles, basically. The first one in 2005 and the second one basically now in 2021. Yeah. So is that a good thing for you to go through such a hype cycle? Or is it also a big challenge? Because I imagine valuations are like skyrocketing. 
And, you know, it's not easier to also get access to the good deals because there's just so much money thrown at them. Yeah, it's, you know, and this is where we're in a much better situation today than we were the last hype cycle, because today we're in a situation we've got an evergreen fund. You know, if if the valuations just go through the roof this year, you know, it's perfectly fine if we don't make one investment the whole year. I mean, it, it would kind of be odd, but, it, you know, it's not... Um, We'll focus on exits. This year, we have more exits ongoing right now than we've ever had at, at one time, right? It's just, so we're taking advantage of the fact that valuations are going course, through the yeah. roof. And we're that's what they say, buy low, sell high, right? right yeah. And uh, and there will be times where, you know, and it's not, it's usually not all sectors everywhere geographically, right? So there are, we always find pockets where valuations are still reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is it is quite difficult. And the the sad thing I think is if you look at the lessons kind of learned of the last hype cycle, which very unfortunately was followed by the financial crisis, which I'm sure you know. I mean, I don't blame people that we couldn't predict that. But what was happening is that if you had raised a fund, if you could imagine the hype cycle, let's say, is 2005, 2006. If you raise a fund in 2003, 2004, you're deploying. You have to deploy all of your capital in four to five years. So you're exactly deploying it during the hype cycle. And then when you're sitting on a huge, you know, almost complete portfolio, right, of companies that you think don't need that much more money, so you only have a certain amount of reserves, then bam, the financial crisis comes. These companies need a lot more money. You can bet that the generalist funds that jumped into this hype cycle thinking that this was just a way for them to raise mega funds and have huge management fees, right? They go running for the exit. They leave all of the clean tech funds there holding the baby, right? And and the funds just didn't have enough money, right? We didn't have we didn't have enough money to cover our prorata and all of our colleagues prorate as well. So there's a lot, really unfortunate, a lot of really good companies that didn't deserve to to go bankrupt, actually went bankrupt. And I would say part of the problem was that, you know, they maybe didn't raise enough money for a rainy day. Um, and they, they raised money from people who were giving them the highest valuation, but maybe weren't really long-term committed to the sector. Right. Um, and so there's a lot of lessons that we've learned, um, you know, about, you know, stage. I've mentioned that before, um, you know, kinds of entrepreneurs. But I think also very, very important for us is who we're investing with. And we often tell the companies, you're going to raise enough money to get to break even if necessary. I mean, if they're in revenues, if they're pre-revenue, that doesn't make sense. But if they're in revenues, we say if the money's available, take it take it. And if it ends up being too much, think of something, you know, think of scaling faster, right? Get better talent on board, right? So you can always find, you know, value creative ways to deploy that money, right? Um, But we want to make sure that there's a significant buffer in there. And I tell them for good things and for bad, right? And maybe it's a fantastic opportunity. If you didn't have the money, you couldn't take that opportunity, right? So take the money, you know, try to to make sure that you've got enough reserves in there, um, because you don't know when when the hype cycle is gonna you know 
kind of reverse itself. And right now we're in a hype cycle. Right now there's, I mean, I hear like huge institutional investors saying they're going to raise a clean tech or climate tech venture capital fund. And it really, that's something to lose sleep about, right? <laughs> because unless they hire a team that actually knows what they're going to, what they're doing, mm -hmm. What I'm afraid of is that we have a lot of really bad experiences. And again, it taints the sector. It took so many years for our sector to regain its reputation because so many generalist funds lost money, which is why they're calling it climate tech now. They don't want to call it clean tech because back in 2005, they called their fund clean tech and yeah, it was a right. disaster, right? Yeah. And so now they, they don't want to take the responsibility for having done that you know, perhaps not in the smartest way. So they rebrand it. It's now called Climate Tech. But I don't know that they're actually applying the learnings from back then. And I'm concerned that a lot of people lose money. And and it becomes difficult. And if it, be, you know, I'm not worried about, I mean, we're, we work with the corporates. Corporates will always be there. I'm not worried about that. But these startup companies also need money that ultimately comes from institutional investors, right? So if, if you know, they get tainted, if the sector gets tainted and the institutional investors all pull out, right? In the end of the day, these startups won't have enough money, right? And I complained before about them not taking enough money. Well, if it's not even available, then for sure they can't take it, right? And then they will just have very small ambitions, right? And they'll just, you know, they'll, they'll survive, but they won't thrive, right? And that's what we need. We need companies that thrive, right? That if you also, whether you want to look at it from the financial point of view or also from the environmental kind of impact point of view, you can only have a huge impact if you have a lot of commercialized product, right? And so you need money to do that, right? Um, so, I, you know, I just, yeah, we're right now we are definitely in a hype cycle. I've never had more people suddenly overnight think that I'm in a really interesting sector. <laughs> People who haven't talked to me in years, now all of a sudden like, wow, aren't you doing X, Y, Z? Which is kind of funny. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they also have to be realistic, right? This is industrial tech. You're not going to generate 25, 30% net returns in this sector. I'm sorry, that's not, that's not gonna happen. Uh, at least, at least it's not going to happen repeatedly. Sure. Do we have, you know, a few portfolio companies that have absolutely phenomenal, you know, out of the park type of returns? Of course, right. But on average, on average, if you look over twenty years of track record, I would say, you know, if you can return consistently, return, you know, around twenty, fifteen to twenty percent net IRRs in the sector, you're doing a great job, right? And you've come a really long way. I mean, you know, going through these ups and downs and also the challenges that you faced and described now, that's an impressive story by itself. I just wonder, have you ever thought about giving up or quitting at all? Oh, no. No? This job, it it sucks you in and eats you up, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's, all, it's all consuming, right? It's, yeah. it's exciting. But then the flip side of the excitement is, yeah, it's intense, right? Uh, you can't tell a startup company, oh, sorry, I'm on a sailing vacation. We can't have board meetings for the next three weeks, you know. I mean, no, I mean, you have to be available, right? You have to be available for, like I said, for good things and for bad. Um, and it's, you know, it's super exciting. I mean, think the fact I get paid 
to learn every single day. I mean, mm-hmm. when you meet an entrepreneur, they want nothing more than to shove as much information into my brain in that hour, <laughs> right? And sometimes I have to like warn them, look, I'm not going to end this discussion with a PhD, right? So stop all the technical explanations, right? But um, but they're excited. It's It's contagious, right? You get excited talking to them and you learn so much. I mean, every single day I learn about some new technology or some new challenge in the industries or solutions and stuff. And and being part of solving those problems and connecting, you know, I mean, we just take it for granted that, oh, you want to talk to somebody at BSF? Okay, here, call this guy, tell him I told you to call. Oh, you want to talk to somebody at Total, General Motors, no problem. You know, I can put, you know, people in contact with five of the top potential customers in the world within a you know a day or so right um and and that's something that we should then make available Mm -hmm. to them right um and that's exciting that's exciting when you can kind of make these connections and hopefully you know i mean afterwards uh, you know they have to work on it themselves right but if you can put people together who, who didn't have contact before and and something great comes out of that, I think that that's exciting. Amazing. And in that regard, you know, you also mentioned that there's also a lot of stress and you have to solve problems all the time. So I also wonder how do you actually also stay, you know, healthy and take care of yourself despite all the action going on? I'm a rower. I was out on the lake at 6.30 this morning. Wow. <laughs> and tomorrow morning at 6.30. I spent actually all weekend. I went on a rowing tour. I rowed, nice. I think we rode maybe 75 kilometers on the weekend. Um, so that's fun. That's in that I think I didn't do that when I was younger. Now I allow myself that, that I say no external meetings before nine o'clock in the morning. You can have internal meetings. The guys just see me in my rowing stuff, but, um, but no external meetings before nine o'clock in the morning, if we can avoid it. Obviously we deal a lot with Asia. So, you know, there's days right. i mean i don't go rowing every day right um but they're definitely um i you know it'd be great if, if i could consistently go rowing four or five uh, let's say four times a week that would be fantastic um right now it's i mean i've really taken the advantage that we haven't been traveling right so True, yeah. that's great then you could uh, you can plan your days a lot more um but uh yeah i think that's that's important and it's also important to you know put things in perspective this isn't open heart surgery we're doing here, right? Nobody's going to die, right? So, you know, <laughs> we're, you know, it's, it's really important what we're doing, but we're not that important, right? I mean, it's not, you know, it's not like we have people's lives in our hands. We maybe have their livelihoods sometimes, but not yeah. their lives. So I think you also have to be, uh, you know, a little bit, like I said, put, put, your, put your role in perspective in the grand scheme of things in life. You're not saving anybody. Nobody's going to die if you're 10 minutes late. So I think that, you know, if, if we can all just be a little bit more feet on the ground, you know, we do some great things. We do some really terrible things, too. I mean, we make mistakes. So we're just all human here, right? And I would also like to look at some numbers to mm-hmm. also look in the future afterwards. So You've raised five venture capital funds so far. Um, you backed more than 70 emerging technology leaders through over 500 transactions and also managed five third-party investment mandates. Mm-hmm. That's a really impressive track record. So we just wonder, now you look back at 20 years of venture capital, how do the next 20 years look like? Yeah, I think, 
Um, I mean, I don't have any really big ambitions that Emerald grows and becomes a huge, huge company. For me, what's important is that whatever we do, we're really good at it, right? And I do believe, just like I mentioned before about the plastic waste solutions and stuff like that, there will always be these opportunities of, of industries in extreme transition, right? Um, so we will always be building up competencies in new areas. I mean, right now, you know, the whole agri-food tech is kind of also, um, you know, I mean, everybody's talking about alternative proteins, but there's also other parts of the, of the industry that are very exciting. And so we will always be building up competencies and, you know, as things kind of mature, and that's, it's a good thing if something is no longer a venture play. Like if you think, you know, the typical wind deal or solar deal, it's because it's matured out of venture capital right. and the, you know, the cost goes down. It's good for the consumers. It's good for the, for the planet and stuff. And so we, we will always be kind of, uh, let's say accompanying these, these trends. So, you know, it's important for us to spot something to, jump into it at the right time and then you know also to let go of it when it's all, when it's no longer a venture play um in industrial i mean industrial technology will exist i would say forever and so i'm sure we will always have um interesting areas and, and it will cause us also to to build up uh, additional competencies so if I look 20 years from now, I'm sure there will be many more themes coming up within industrial tech. Um, I, everything we do, we want to do around innovation. Um, you know, I don't want to one day be a buyout fund or an infrastructure fund. I want to stay in innovation. What we will probably do, though, is we'll probably um, help the corporates more in the future. Because we find that even if we can put them in touch with the right startup, sometimes that relationship doesn't really gel, right? It's you know it's not like like a dating platform. They need a little bit more. <laughs> they need they need like somebody like a chaperone during the dating period, right? right? So that it actually becomes something afterwards. And so we're we're also building up more um, kind of you know, if you like a toolkits or, or processes and whatnot to help the coach the startups, but also the, the corporates, um, you know, on how they can actually have successful pilots and, and, um, and you know, proof of concept type things so that it will actually mature to a commercial relationship afterwards. Great. And what is next for you, Gina, personally? Oh, I'm never going to retire. I don't believe in retirement. <laughs> why not? You just love just so much what think, you do. Yeah, I, I just uh. like, why would you why would you voluntarily walk away from this? Right. Maybe maybe working a little bit less hours would be nice, right? I used to for years I used to say I wish I had one day extra per week that uh, nobody else has. I think I'm just going to have to take that day, right? right. Um, so that would be great to have more time to do other things. Um, but I can't imagine, you know, like locking the door behind me and walking away one day and just, I mean, it's too exciting. Why would you leave the party when it's still going on? Yeah, sure. Right? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, people can see it through the audio podcast, but I mean, the sparkle in your eyes, the enthusiasm about what you do, it's just fantastic. <laughs> Even after 20 years in business, it still yeah. feels like the, the first day enthusiasm from speaking to you. That's really yeah. impressive. It is. And it, again, it's this contagion, right? We're always meeting new entrepreneurs. We're always investing in new companies. So, you know, it kind of feeds itself, if you like. It's always new and exciting. Um, so, yeah, I, I love what I do. But what would you do if you had one more day per week? So how would you spend that time? Oh, I love cooking. 
I would probably, maybe I would take some real cooking courses. I would do that. I love that. Um, maybe also just take every so often like a detour, like not always take the direct way. Mm -hmm. If you see something, oh, it'd be nice to stop there and have a coffee or have a drink or take a walk in this park or, you know, I think I, I'm under, yeah, I just don't have enough time to allow myself to do things slower or, you know, like I said, not take the direct way um, all the time. And I, I travel so many times to cities that I've, I will say I've never seen, right? Um, or, or I only recognize that I've been in the city when I get back to the airport and go into the lounge and I go, oh yeah, I've been here before. <laughs> That's not good, right? There's so many, you know, if I would allow myself an extra half a day to just walk around the city, see something, don't just see the airport and the lounge, right? Um, so yeah, that would be that would be nice. And I, I hope that I can arrange that for myself. Um, but it also, you know, it also means saying no um, to things. Um, which I find hard because if I believe or if I can if I can see the value in something, it's hard for me to say no to it, right? Um, so I get I am victim of my own <laughs> my own uh, decisions, if you like, of constantly saying yes to things. Um, but I think it's important. I think that we also have a responsibility to make a contribution, and if if somebody feels that we can make a contribution in, in a certain area, then, you know, whether it's going to the ETH and talking to the students or attending, you know, uh, female uh, founders, female entrepreneur type of events, being in juries for startups, whatever it may be, if we can make a contribution to see that our ecosystem, you know, continues to thrive, um, I think that that we should do that, right? And that's where that's where it becomes hard to say no, right? <laughs> because you can see that maybe tomorrow it's not going to be a direct, you know, uh, value contributor to you. But longer term, it is going to maybe maybe I'll be gone by then. It doesn't matter. But you know, I think that that we have a responsibility to give back, and part of giving back is giving your time, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I'm always kind of struggling with what do I say no to. I don't like to say no, I like to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm really impressed by your focus on the long-term effects of your decisions and how mm -hmm. you operate. I think you know, this focus on, we don't need the, the short-term gains or optimize the short-term gains. Mm -hmm. You really focus on the long-term benefit. And I think that's something really healthy, calming, but also inspiring at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that's just a big takeaway from me. From well, that thank interview. you. So that's, thank you. that's wonderful. It's a long-term game. Venture capital is definitely a long-term game. We also like to ask our guests about their favorite resources and gadgets. So are there any books or blogs, podcasts, or other gadgets and tools that you use yourself that you can recommend to our listeners? I love to read books. And I love, well, first of all, I love to buy cookbooks and look through them. But I love to read, <laughs> read books, um, physical books. I like to have a book in my purse when I'm traveling and stuff and I'm on the train. And I'm always reading uh, three books at one time. One is always kind of just a novel, maybe a true story, but, you know, something not business. One is more about business and one is more about the brain. So I'm really fascinated about the brain. And, you know, sometimes it's psychology, sometimes it's neurology, but I, I'm really fascinated by that. So, yeah, so I always have a, a stack of books that are waiting for me to get to them. But I'm, I'm just finishing up Boys in the Boat, which is about the U.S. Uh, Olympic rowing team. Nice. I'm reading uh, Leadership is Language. I'm almost done with that one. 
It wasn't that great of a book. Um, and, um, starting, I just bought another, a new book the other day called um, uh, Humor Seriously. It's about using humor in business and in life in general and how important it is to laugh with people. Um, and, and I really do believe that. I love, I love to sit here in my office and hear people in, you know, having a coffee laughing about something. I think that's really great. Um, and I'm also reading a book about the female brain, like about more from a chemical point of view. But I think it's super interesting. Nice. So yeah, I'm a book junkie. Fantastic. <laughs> and for the very last part, we have some rapid fire questions for you. Okay. I need to give you a selection of choices to choose from or a short question that you can answer in one sentence. Are you ready? Yeah. So the first one, regret making or not making investment? Making. How many hours of sleep did you get last night? Seven. Profit or environment? Environment. What does money mean to you? My own money? Not much. <laughs> Why not much? I, I, I'm maybe I'm too easily satisfied. I have enough and that's enough. Yeah, I like that. Large founder teams or small founder teams? Small. Your advice to your 20-year-old self? Believe in yourself more. Don't be so dependent upon other people believing in you. Nice. That's a very powerful sentence. And the last one, I'm really curious what you say here. United States or Switzerland? Switzerland! <laughs> That's an easy choice for you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've lived here for 30 years. I mean, there's a reason why I'm still here, right? I'm not actually no longer American either. Oh, nice. I gave up my U.S. citizenship. So, yeah, there's a lot of wonderful things about Switzerland, but every every country has its pros and cons. There's things I miss about the U.S. Sure. Um, there's things that drive me nuts about the U.S. Now, with new president, there's a little bit less things that drive me nuts about the U.S. Um, but still, I'm a big fan of Switzerland. I think Switzerland has a lot of potential, right? Um, and no country is perfect. Um, but they can always, everybody can always improve. Countries can improve, companies can improve, people can improve. So I look at it more like improvement potential. Exactly. And there we can definitely learn in terms of thinking ambitiously mm. from the United States. So exactly. that's one point exactly. that we can improve. Exactly. Gina, that was a lot of fun. Thank you so much yeah, for taking thanks. the team. This time. has really been fun. And uh, all the best, lots of success for the future. And we right. hope to have see you rowing more on the lake and <laughs> hope you also have some more time for cooking classes or yeah. whatever you like to do. Great. Thank, Thank you, you very much. It's been a great time. This episode was brought to you by Swisspreneur's main partner, Clara Business, the digital all-in-one solution for small businesses. Managing internal processes manually and on paper wastes an incredible amount of time. That's why Clara digitizes everything, allowing you to focus on what really matters, your core business. Go to clara.ch to find out how your business administration can be simpler, faster, and more efficient. Again, that's clara.ch.